we are Jamie and Laura, and this is Shooting the Shit, your current affairs millennial debate show. Welcome to episode two. Woo! Woo! Are we going to do that every week? We're going to do it every week. Okay, cool. Um, over the next 40 minutes, we'll bring you perspectives on the President's Club and our poor, poor oceans just as much as the next greatest travel innovation. Jamie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Laura. Why are you so well? I'm very excited to be recording another episode of Shooting the Shit. I heard that one of our colleagues went out on the balcony the other day and found you howling from it like a werewolf. Obviously, standard practice. Um, it's one of my one of my favourite ways to uh, clear my head, really get clean thinking, good ideas coming in. Um, we had a, a super blood moon thing going on as well. Yeah. Um, as you're well aware, my spirit animal is also a wolf. Am I aware of that? I think you're aware of that. Okay, fine. Um, so there are just times when the, the wolf in me comes out. Let the howl out, let the innovation in. Uh, if listeners ask really nicely, um, I may howl on a future episode of Shooting the Shit. Um, if we get one million likes on the podcast, then Jamie will howl for at least 10 seconds. I reckon like 10 likes. I think a million. Okay. Okay, let's go halfway between. Uh, how are you, Laura? Um, I'm very, very well. I'm pumped because I just, I felt the warmth on my skin at the weekend from the sun. Um, But I'm also pumped because Lent has started this week. I think you should maybe take up a cooking for cats course. (laughs) Why? Are you you going to tell the listeners why, Laura? I can't. You can't? I'm worried. I don't think anyone from the RSPCA is listening and uh, I will... Before you go into this story, I will tell everyone just how much uh, Laura loves Kitty, dotes on him, uh, so anything that you hear in this story is, is um, out of love. Absolutely out of love. He is my one true love. A few weeks ago, I think we'd all been out for drinks, and I got back at circa midnight, and I was greeted by this incessant meowing. Anyone that's ever had a cat knows the incessant meowing, and there's you have to do something to stop it. Um, and of course, it was a cry for food. And of course, because I am irresponsible, there was no cat food in the house. And so Laura's post-gin and tonic brain decided the best thing to do would be to cook him up a feast. But also, because I'm really disorganised, I don't have any food at all in the house. So I opened the cupboards to see what was there. And all I could find was rice and gravy powder. So I made him some gravy rice. It sounds delicious. I actually tried a bit because I was a bit peckish and my New Year's resolution is not to have any takeaways and better than a poke in the eye with sharp stick. Anyway, quite enough of that. I think we should get going with the shit show. The final crusade of modular holidays has been achieved. Moving on from Ryanair now charging for a space in an overhead locker to store anything bigger than a coin purse, Brits and Germans alike will be pleased to know that they no longer have to set their alarms for pre-sunrise poolside Olympics during their summer holidays. Thomas Cook are trialling Book Your Sunbella ahead of time as a service. For the small fee of £26, you can now book your sunbed before you travel. Crying has often been lauded for its therapeutic benefits, the purge of saline and snot that is the last haul over one of life's hiccups and allows us to begin again and so to the centre of excellence for innovation that is Japan, where crying is now commodified. For 7,900 yen, about $65, it's now possible to hire an attractive man to come to your workplace and gently brush away the tears as you weep. Crying as a service is here. Crying Together is the latest experience available for purchase in Japan. It was once reserved only for people with at least some prior acquaintance with one another. Sex, obviously, but also cuddling, watching television, or cleaning up your apartment after you die alone in it. Are Elon Musk's gimmicks more successful than his big ideas? First it was Boring Company Caps. Now the Boring Company sells $10 million worth of flamethrowers in less than 100 hours. Don't be alarmed that everyday citizens are going to be wandering the streets with weapons off of Grand Theft Auto. Each one comes with a free Boring Company fire extinguisher. We've touched on shopping frenzies before on shooting the ship. But I think humanity has hit a new low last week. Not since the days of Marie Antoinette has the prospect of distributing confectionery to the masses caused quite such a stir. After the French supermarket chain, Intermarché, discounted the popular hazelnut spread Nutella, other hazelnut spreads are available, by 70% and people went, well, wild. Whilst heads might not have rolled, there were reports of hair pulling and blood being drawn, 
and general fighting like animals. Internet idiocy has reached new lows, with people popping washing machine capsules for the glory of online fame. You know the ones I mean, the squishy blue and green tabs that you pop in with your washing. This is called the Tide Pod Challenge. Ingesting these pods can cause nausea, vomiting, coughing, choking, breathing trouble, the list continues. No one's died yet, but I'm not interested in chancing it. Some absolute shit shows going on there in the world this week, Laura. What a shit show. What a shit show. What do we reckon about this Thomas Cook sunbed reservation fiasco? I went, so first of all, I thought this must be a joke. I went on their website today and there's a three-stage process and a video accompanying it and you choose it via an app and you can see the different beds around the pool so you can pick it for like optimum location. So the only thing I would say is does it affect the price of other things to be able to book your sunbed for a certain amount? Because to me it changes the whole experience of the holiday in general. So, for example, if I'm buying a hotel room and the hotel has a pool, mm -hmm. I believe I have access to any position around that pool. Yeah. I buy the hotel rooms based uh, on their views or things like that. Yeah. But suddenly, if a bed that is in a particularly great position is not available on any day that I'm on the holiday, yeah. is, does my room price change? Yeah, because they're, they're just making extra money. They're just making extra money and I'm getting a less, less good experience less and less choice. Yeah, I mean, I would I would guess that, no, they're not going to discount the, um, the cost of anything else. But we often look for evidence of existing behaviours and build innovations off the back of it, right? Yeah. Because when people hack stuff together, that's an opportunity. Um, and so it's surprising it's taken this long. But also, are they rooted to the spot? Like, can you not move the sunbeds? Because I don't know <laughs> about you, but the sun moves... And yes. therefore, you know, I want an even tan. So, I mean, anyone that knows me knows that there's no chance of any form of tan. <laughs> but, like, I want to move the sunbed with the sun. So does that suddenly mean, like, if I move it into someone else's space, do I get charged twice? Does Can someone else put a sunbed in a space that I've moved a sunbed from? <laughs> the whole thing just sounds, like, completely unmanageable. So many complex questions. When I was looking at the maps of these hotels, there's one in Gran Canaria, there's one in Lanzarote, it didn't look like there were that many beds to choose from, and they kind of look, all looked like equally good spots to me, being the um, poolside connoisseur that I am. But I thought maybe these, you know, these hotels where thousands and thousands of people go, maybe there was people like to be by the right pool or near the best bar and those kind of things. Maybe it was more relevant there. On a broader level, what does component pricing make you think when you're going on holiday? So we were talking about Ryanair the other day. Um, being able to book a slot in a locker versus reserve your seat in advance, priority access to the queue or to boarding. And whilst I understand that that kind of bottom-up pricing is making it cheaper and more accessible for people, to me it also frustrates me, it leaves me in like a painful, difficult feeling, which isn't what I want when I go on holiday. I want ultimate relaxation. I want to be calm. I want to think that everything is catered for and taken care of. So does component pricing in a hotel and in other areas of my holiday actually lead to the correct outcome that I want, which is a relaxing, energising holiday? On the one hand, it's cool for you because you can afford to pay for a um, nice, relaxing, component-free holiday. But for me, I, I don't know. I would rather never fly Ryanair because I find it wholly grim as an experience. Um, but EasyJet I have less of a problem with, and actually the component pricing means I get to choose, gives me some choice over how I fly, so I'm, I'm using it to control the experience rather than um, find ways to hack together something cheaper, so now I can fly in the first row and I get to control that, um, which means that I it's less stressful for me to board and disembark at the other end. I can take exactly how much luggage I need and I really like that. And I'm, I'm happy on the occasions when I need to take an extra bag because I'm going skiing or something like that to, to pay for that to happen. So I think for me, it, it just leads to me having more of a my desired experience. I just don't think, I don't know if it's about the, the modules or the desired experience or where you place the value within the experience. Yeah. So I place the value on getting to the other place. Yeah. Like that's part of my holiday, being yeah. away, being somewhere different. Being able to take luggage on that journey is something that's part of it, not that I'm paying to take luggage. So it just feels like the value exchange mm. is wrong. Like I understand that placing 
like a better allocation of people and resource into flying so that more people can get away is great. Yeah, I'm kind of waiting for an interface to sit over the top of all of this choice and for you to once plug in your preferences as to whether you want the price that surfaced to you to include your seat, your check-in price, your credit card fee, your baggage, and to just like a sky scanner without all the optionality that happens afterwards, because right now we're just presented with a list of prices that are not comparable, which just leads to endless stress and ultimately feeling like you've been like you're paying more for a budget airline because you didn't necessarily know you're gonna have to pay to buy the specific ticket. I was thinking as well, would I rather that I almost without fail paid the full price up front and then was refunded for things I didn't use? And what kind of different behaviour that might drive? Elon Musk? Elon Musk. Did you manage to buy a boring company flamethrower? Never, ever, ever. I, th I think we could have really used one around the office. <laughs> what, would you, what would be your top use case for a I mean, boring company flamethrower? Like, we actually often talk about effective meetings, and I think boring company flamethrowers could really, really uh, <laughs> ensure that we had effective meetings. Carrot or stick? I'm thinking stick. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. Um, I think it's a pretty smart way of raising some money, at the same time as marketing. Like, plenty of other companies would take that same route, like, we're going to either make some merchandise, or we're going to make, we're going to do a stunt you know, Paddy Power in this country, like, famed for marketing stunts that generate plenty of uh, PR coverage, and that's how they, they get the word out and the name out. People complain about them. We talked um, on the shit show previously about Greg's yeah. sausage roll Jesus, you know. Pastry complete, Christ. The pastry Christ. A complete stunt. But they didn't actually go and sell sausage roll Jesuses, which I think would have been absolutely genius if they had. But I... I don't think that you can compare pastry Christs and flamethrowers purely because I think it's it just feels really irresponsible to me. What, pastry Christ? We've discussed that. If you want to hear more about that, episode one is for you. No, selling the flamethrowers to the masses just doesn't feel okay. Selling, sell all the hats you like. Who knows how many flamethrowers they actually sold? I mean, that's the point of the story, is that... They sold like 20,000 or something. Sure, but do they actually throw flames? Like, have, have we have we spoken to anyone who's got... Look, if any listeners out there were one of the thousands that bought a boring company flamethrower, we'd love to hear, uh, like, how you're getting on. How you're throwing flames. <laughs> Where are you throwing flames? What are you throwing, <laughs> throwing Easy for you flames to say, Laura. for? Because it just seems like just dishing out weapons. Who knows what they're, what they're going to go with next? Caps, flamethrowers, what? Jetpacks? Kittens? Kittens. Boring company kittens. kittens. You heard it here first. And if you feel that it was irresponsible sending people flamethrowers through the post, wait until <laughs> the RSPCA hear a load of that, Laura. two guests with us today. Firstly, Nazia Shinge, lifelong feminist and freedom fighter, actively promoting compassion for all, daughter of immigrants, English is a second language, but one of the most well-spoken people I know. But it's not all sweetness and light, is it, Nazia? Would you like to tell us about uh, the great Parisian train robbery? <laughs> yes. Um, so I was doing a charity hitchhike whilst at university, and the idea is that you try and make it to Paris and back. Um, without buying any tickets or spending any money. Um, and so a group of us boarded a train, or tried to board a train in Paris. We got arrested and detained. Our passports uh, were taken from us and um, we were kept back until all of the trains had left the station. And then we were released. That's the kind of criminals we have in our midst, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We're also joined by Adam Leach, a journalist who covers the sectors and topics others like to avoid, for magazines you've almost certainly never read. From facilities management world to packaging gateway, he certainly loves a niche. You can follow him at energised underscore Adam, but unfortunately he can't follow you back because he's forgotten the password to both the account and the email that the account is linked to. Uh, Adam, any memorable moments in niche journalism? I think my favourite headline that I came up with was a while back when we did a story on Dell trialling new fungal-based packaging and using the pretty much the full extent of my French knowledge came up with Dell Champignons alternative packaging. Absolute genius. <laughs> Laura's looking at me like she doesn't understand, which is normally what happens when someone makes a joke on this show. I'm getting a terrible reputation on this podcast. I promise I do understand some things. Laura, you're the best French speaker in the room, so... Um, Del mushrooms. Yeah. What's the French for mushrooms? 
Champion. Right. And what do you do when you're like promoting something? Champion it? Right. Yeah, very good. There we go. Probably look better right, <laughs> written down. Just a bit. Awesome. Well, we're very excited to have these two with us. So let's kick off with our first debate. Our first debate is around the President's Club. As you'll most likely have heard by now, it's a charity that's been running for three decades and has raised over £20 million for charity. It's brought the enormity of this year's gender debate to the UK. So, the President's Club, it's a club for powerful people, except women can't attend. Proudly introduced on the night of their event this year as the most un-PC event of the year, hundreds of girls are recruited, ordered to wear a uniform of tight, short black dresses and matching underwear and told to keep the men happy and that we hoped they wouldn't be too annoying. It turns out that being annoying means groping, inviting them to their bedrooms and as one man requested, down your champagne, take your pants off and dance on the table. The people there as guests included huge UK role models, people in the government and celebrities, all present and a ton of them have denied knowing nothing of the sort might go down there despite its long-term reputation. We've seen a wave of charities returning the money raised that evening and at events before, but today we're asking the bigger questions. What does this mean for us? Is this a debate of the responsibility of role models in society? Is it a question of consent? Is it a debate around boys clubs and when they'll be over? What's the real debate here? Nazia, what do you think? Personally, I think that one of the things that struck me most um, just after the news hit was um, a tweet that David Walliams issued almost immediately to say, hey, I just came to do my act as a, as a comedian and then I left immediately afterwards and I saw nothing. My immediate reaction to that was how unacceptable that comment was mm -hmm. and how in 2018 I'm very glad that I don't believe that it's acceptable to be a bystander any longer and to um, turn a blind eye to sexism or the exploitation of any human being. So that was my massive um, takeaway. But also I think what we're seeing now in society, particularly with the Time's Up uh, campaign, the various women's marches globally, and the Me Too campaign at the end of the last year, is that women and, and men, all, all feminists, all, all equalitists are saying, this is no longer acceptable. It's no longer acceptable to say, hey, I turned up and I noticed nothing. So for me, there were two issues up front that made it particularly <laughs> unsavoury. So there's the first, which is a men-only event for business leaders. Yeah. So yeah. that straight off tells you that the higher echelons of power are still in some ways closed to one half of the human race. So that in itself, I think, is unacceptable. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that talking about bystanders, like, mm. anyone should have known that. Yeah, like, the, the fact that the, the event was happening in the first place yeah, is, exactly. like, pretty scandalous. Yeah, totally. I think it would have been immediately obvious to anybody walking into that room what the demographic was. And I think to say that you didn't notice is no longer acceptable. Yeah, and, like, whoever was promoting it, whoever was organising it, whoever was sending out invites for it, like, the whole organisation and infrastructure around that is a male only event to prolong, celebrate, uh, encapsulate everything that is wrong about business in 2018 in terms of not being open to everyone. Yeah, totally. Would we feel different if we were talking about a women's only event? Because that's something that's been raised to me when talking about this with people oh, I like, know. I hate that. I hate that argument so much. That fact that, well, what about the men? And, you know, um, how about women's only events and stuff like that? Please. We don't have equality in society right now. And that is why this is a massive issue. Going back to that original point um, around consent, I think, again, what we need to recognise is that it's never acceptable to exploit um, a particular um, a group in society and I think that's exactly what that was we you know we heard about um, the, the again the demographic being largely students and people that needed the money so to exploit those young women um, and to to say to them you know by the way you're going to get groped and harassed on the on the surface it might look like girls turned up they paid a bit of cash they did a bit of dancing yeah. um, and then they went home and they had 150 quid in their pocket but the reality of the situation was 
they arrived at 4pm, they had to sign a five-page NDA mm. without being given a chance to look at it and w- mm. without being given a copy to take away. Mm. Then their phones were confiscated. <laughs> then they um, they were escorted to and from the bathroom and anyone that was in there too long was <clears throat> called out on it. It just, it just shouts of um, oppression and just things yeah. that you don't expect to happen in this country. Exactly. And on that point about oppression, what's also interesting is that a decision that had been taken by the coalition government in 2013, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but they removed um, employee protections against third-party harassment from the Equality Act of 2010. Has there been, has there been any indication as to why, as to why that was? No, no idea. I'm, I'm not aware of why they thought that was a good idea. So the point there is that there are some situations where we as a society should make it impossible to consent to harassment. Impossible exactly. to place yourself yeah. in a position due to your vulnerable position yeah. that means that harassment is a, a possibility. So what does that mean about where we draw the line? Because another debate I've heard is if we're uncomfortable with this, then we're also uncomfortable with strip clubs. Well, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable. Certainly strip clubs, when they're then connected to business, like the age of male employees uh, going to strip clubs to do deals or to socialise together, like that's the epitome of uh, lack of equality within a workplace because that's saying we, again, want to shut the doors, put up the put up the walls against uh, like one half of the workforce so that yeah. they are continue to be locked out. Yeah. T- times are changing. You know, w- women are an integral part of um, driving the success of our economy, um, our businesses, and, and it's no longer acceptable to, to have these kinds of um, clubs where they um, deliberately um, exclude women. Um, I, I, think, I think the time is completely up, definitely. It- I guess the the further stretch of that point is um, other things that I've read when when thinking about this topic this week is um, things like sporting events that are now moving to again come into step with uh, with the changing times and to think that uh, they should be equal environments for spectators to come and watch and therefore we've seen uh, darts remove walk on girls as they were called. Yeah. Um, Formula One moving yeah. to remove grid girls. Yeah. Um, and there was a bit of a backlash on that this week. So um, Kelly Brook was saying, oh, this is one of the best jobs I ever had. I was well treated. Uh, it was a fun lifestyle, a good environment. Um, it kickstarted my career. It was good money, all of those things. I think it's important to recognise that what we're trying to say is that aspirations of women should go beyond being a bunny girl mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a Formula One um, sex object that actually what we're saying now is that we should be aspiring to be CEOs, um, chief technology officers and um, members of parliament. I think yeah. that's what we're trying to say here. It, it's, you know, we, it's no longer acceptable for um, women to just aspire to mm-hmm. and get paid to be um, the uh, sexually exploited objects in the room. For me as well, there's the, the point that if one sector of so if you take formula one it's a huge huge business huge industry there are you know people running it there are people uh, running teams there are mechanics there are engineers there are pr departments marketing departments um and there are drivers and then as one small part of it there are also um grid walkers until you get to a stage where the access at every level is open to women then why would you define one area specifically being for women and that's I think something that's very uncomfortable. I don't have an opinion either way as as to whether uh, society's aesthetic vision of what a man or a woman should look like should be allowed to help promote the sport. I do feel uncomfortable with the fact that there aren't women drivers and there aren't Mm -hmm. uh, like the female CEO of the of the Formula One business but there are grid walkers. I think there has been within F1 as an example I think that there is female lead of the team and there have been attempts to bring, bring drugs through so, so they are moving in in that way which i think almost makes the position with grid girls even even more surprising that they that they, that they see that it's something that they need to be developing on but they've been just ignorant of of some of the other elements elements that they carry out also it's been particularly with the darts decision it's been quite interesting in terms of the response to some of those decisions some of the papers, some of the more tabloid sports-oriented papers have 
have almost, it's, it's actually been one of those rare occasions where people have been trying to make the, the opposition to the decision seem seem larger than it's actually been. I think mm-hmm. people in general accept yeah. that, that these are outdated and yeah. this isn't representative of society anymore these days. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think going back to the, the, the original to that, I, I wish I was surprised that something like the President's Club still exists and still goes on, but I'm not. I think particularly having looked at some of the, I guess, the, this elite club, a lot of people working in the property sector, mm-hmm. a lot of areas where they do have a reputation of, of just being male-dominated and, mm-hmm. yeah, outdated um, with their attitudes. But I wonder, is this, is it reflective of the way things are or, or of a dying generation that are, that are going to be out and, and, you know, are the leaders, the people of the future going to be doing things such as that. I'd, I'd like to think not, and not just for PR reasons or because they realise they might get found out on Twitter, but just because mm-hmm. in this day and age, anyone outside of that set just doesn't see it as a way to spend their time. I, I think, I don't know if any of you guys have watched The Post yet, the film The Post. No. <clears throat> if you get the opportunity, do watch it. I watched it in um, Sydney, um, and it's such a fantastic film, but of course it's about um, shining a light on... Um, things that you know cover-ups and it's all about the Vietnam War etc but this is a really great example of how society is now saying do you know what it's time we shone a light on those dark corners of the room Um, men only clubs and the exploitation of young women and how it's not acceptable to continue to do that and I think that this is a really important time for us in history um, where we're saying as you as you just just um, iterated it's it, it's no longer um, it, it's a it's a dying generation it's a dying breed of people that find that it's acceptable to walk into a room David Williams are you listening and to see a demographic of um, older men um, typically in positions of power exploiting young young women who are who've been asked to dress scantily and are you know being forced to sit on laps or, or yeah. get grabbed by older men it's in bikinis is well and truly over yeah you can bet your bottom dollar that if any of their daughters had even thought about being in that room then these men would all have a huge problem with it i mean i see it now when i'm i watched bring it on last night a defining moment of my adolescence um just watching that and you know there was a there was a guy who was a presenter of the cheer championships on on that film and he said um the cheerleaders at school would never even talk to me, but anything with a short skirt and little panties is all right by me. And I thought, oh, that is disgusting. Yeah, One, he's like, it's a championship where school children are yeah. presenting themselves. And two, you just can't say things like that. And it just, yeah. it makes me think how far we've come. So that was, I think, yeah. 2000. And, yeah. you know, 17 or 18 years later as we are now, it's obviously a really long period of time, but so many things like that have changed. But for me, it was the first time when, with the President's Club, it's the first time when I've seen a list of people who I've looked up to doing something that I really, really disagree with and I feel really disappointed. I mean, the guys from Dragon's Den were mm. said to have been on the invite list. I don't know if they went, but yeah. that's devastating for me because I've looked up to these people. I follow them with great intrigue. Mm. The, the advice they've imparted, all of those things and it's so inspirational for me and then suddenly to think that they think this is okay yeah it's terrifying the last thing i want to cover is this bystander point on this debate so i think this is massive and we've struggled as a human race throughout history to define where the line is with being a bystander so i studied a lot of german history at university and it makes me think of the nuremberg trials and where we drew the line as to during the Nazi period, who we hold accountable for what happened, who, who we don't. Mm. And that's this is one of these questions I think we're going to be asking ourselves more and more. Where do we draw the line of accountability? So what do we think the wider implications are for being a bystander now? If we're saying being a bystander is not okay, what does that mean? Being a bystander is not okay if you're, certainly if you're in a position of power, influence, authority, control access any of those things being a bystander is not okay i I still don't i think we want to not call out everyone who's a bystander because they may themselves be in positions of being less able to speak out against something there's still we're still talking about things like industry where Mm. a power someone at the top versus someone at the bottom is a Mm. is an imbalance 
Um, but certainly, if you're if you're in a position of power and influence, then then you have you have no no comeback if you're a bystander. I was at a TEDx um, event. It was a TEDx Covent Garden women's event, um, and I saw the youngest TEDx speaker that I've ever seen, and it was a, a um, I think it was a ten year old girl. And I know she was amazing. 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 She was absolutely amazing, and I'm really sorry I've forgotten her name for the moment. But she was talking about how. As she was growing up, they were encouraged by her parents to call out um, sexism when they saw it, whether it was in advertising, on the television, toys, books, whatever it was, or at school, they would call it out. And I think that's where we should be headed as a society, where we call it out and say, that's sexual discrimination or that's sexism. And I think we should be teaching our children, and that was the point that she was making, it's, it's kind of too late if we are not teaching our children that it's not mm-hmm. okay to be um, subjugated to this kind of behaviour. It's um, incredible to bring your children up like that because, again, yeah, bring it back yeah. to bring it on. Yeah. Um, when I was watching it, I thought I didn't bat an eyelid at this stuff when I was yeah. I was 10 when when yeah. I was watching that film. Yeah. I had no idea it wasn't okay that a man was talking like that about little girls. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you, you have to be trained to spot this stuff and not trying to accept that everything is true that you see. Yeah. Something I always find funny when I, I read it is normally the, the reaction pieces, the the counterbalance to these pieces, which are always the kind of calm down, we're getting carried away, we're, yeah. we're going too fast, things yeah. like that. And you think, no, we're not. Let's, no. The faster we go, the quicker yeah. we get there, uh, the quicker we kind of get to what we all want, which is equality. So Quite. yeah, sure, yeah. keep throwing the baby out with the bathwater yeah. and until we get there. If we, if we have to like lose a few very well-paid uh, kind of white middle-aged male celebrities or business leaders, yeah. I think we might be able to sacrifice them. I think it's okay. Um, and then I'd much rather we did that than like keep trying to check ourselves back all the time. So it's, it's been incredible. Uh, what a challenging subject of debate. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? For me, I think we should definitely go back and look at that third-party harassment um, in terms of the Equality Act of 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I encourage everybody who is listening to ensure that um, if they do see something that is questionable in terms of behaviour, that they call it out. I think we, as a society, we make up our own communities and it's really important that we speak up and we say, do you know what, There's time's up on this. this, this shit is no longer acceptable. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I know that I and my friends have been guilty of sometimes laughing things off that we shouldn't have especially if they're directed at us because it's uncomfortable and embarrassing i know that we're there is a big topic of being scared of if we react and what that means for our jobs and our places and businesses and what an hr function might think about this and all of those things which is really really complex but i think um be brave be courageous i think that's a, a really good Beyond being a simply stunning televisual experience and the water cooler moment uh, of the year, Blue Planet 2 has provoked a lot of debate. Uh, Our very own Prime Minister Theresa May has announced, uh, I presume on the back of working her way through the whole series on iPlayer, a total ban on uh, plastics, eliminating all avoidable plastic waste within 25 years. Uh, so that's 2043 for any of you who are counting. Um, it seems like a long way off, uh, and that was trumped very quickly by Iceland, who brought that timeline forward by 20 years to 2023. Globally, only 9% of plastic is recycled. We've had cauliflower steaks packed in individual plastic wrapping. We've had... The potential of a latte levy, recyclable... Uh, Frankly, is it a latte or a latte? Sorry, a latte levy. Well, no, no, no. Where are you from? Where does latte come from? I'm from the north, you all know that. Fine, letting his authentic self out for the podcast. Um, anyway, seriously. So the latte levy uh, of 25p per coffee to try and help reduce the waste of disposable, non-recyclable plastic cups. Where does it all end? Do we stop packing anything in plastic? Does a total ban on plastics... Uh, need to happen now who's responsible for it is the government responsible for it are private companies responsible for it are we responsible for it Uh, and how does it affect 
our behavior, how does it affect uh, different elements of society from the top to the bottom, throwing that back over to the team. I think we are responsible for it. I, I don't think um, I need Theresa May to tell me to do anything, quite frankly. Um, I don't believe she's qualified to do so. Um, but per personally, I, I think we already are very conscious of um, these issues. And I, I rather resent the government feeling that they have to um, dictate to us, and I hate this idea of a nanny state. I think all of the people, you know, all of all the people I talk to, all of my friends are really committed to reducing plastic waste. And um, I've noticed lots of great um, organisations and bars. Spiritland is one of them, where they've um, actually declared they are removing plastic straws. Weatherspoons did as well, didn't they? Yeah, and and also, I mean, Glastonbury have have. Um, removed all plastic waste also they've never had um, plastic waste so I think you know a lot of places yeah. are doing it and there's a lot of great innovation in this space so there's a lot of seaweed and algae based um, edible cups and straws um, Lollyware is a great example of that they, they produce edible straws and cups I know I have particularly been in discussions with them to um, come up with some custom-made straws because I think we could use them at various different festivals and events that I'm involved with. Um, but yeah, I, th I think um, we are all responsible for reducing plastic waste. It's our planet. Yeah, I, I think we certainly are. I think we have, as individuals, we bear a great responsibility to do our part. But I do think that governments, other countries, and also the EU, who I think, you know, within a week of our less than ambitious aims, gazumpted by you know, more than a decade with their ambitions to, to, to cut plastic. The government doesn't necessarily need to, it doesn't need to be slapping taxes on everything, but it can be doing things to, to enable companies to, to take more action and people to take more action. One of the things that came out of around when there was a, a lot of talk around the coffee cups, the reason they can't be recycled at the moment is because they have, they're a mixture of two different materials so that they can um, hold hot drink. Those can be recycled, but there's only three, three places in the country where mm. you can actually recycle those. So I think, I can't remember the numbers, but it's a very small percentage of coffee cups that are recycled. Those are the areas where the government can, you know, channel support or incentivise companies to, to, build, to, to increase the number of those recycling points. And I think at the moment, one of the bigger issues that, that plays into this is the news that China is no longer accepting our plastic waste because they've reached a point where, you know, their economy has developed and they they don't want to buy our crappy plastic. Um, I which can't believe they were ever buying our crappy plastic. That's a massive shock. What do they I think, think that's a good idea? Though? Yeah, and I think there's a bigger point there as well, which was that we were counting plastic sold to China for recycling as recycled yeah. waste yeah. and so we were putting that down in our recycled waste figures when if you actually look into it only a fraction of that was being recycled and yeah. a hell of a lot of it was ending up in Chinese landfill rather than British landfill yeah so so as of I think I think the ban came in this January up until that point you know, largely plastic bottles um, yeah, the lower grade plastic waste we were exporting 2.7 million tonnes of plastic went to China since, I think it was 2012, which is two-thirds of our total pla wasted plastic exports. That ban comes in, well, the initial response seems to be, oh, well, maybe we can now send it to India if China doesn't want it anymore. I mean, insane, because, yeah. you know, when you asked Jamie, what, what was the question you asked, something like, who's responsible? You know, as always, this is not going to be black and white. It's not that one person's responsible and one's not. It's going to be a mix of government to stop things like that it's going to be and and putting in some legislation because as much as we want people to change their behavior mm. you know there's one way to speed it up and that's to legislate um it's down to each of us to recognize our responsibility to the planet but it's also down to big business and i see mm. some pretty cool stuff going on with the likes of coca-cola who are providing some phenomenal amount of plastic to the market already making mm. changes so i think like we're all responsible when I initially heard that timeline from the government 2042 or whatever it is, I also had this sh very strong reaction that it was not good enough and that we were just being bureaucratic and it was taking ages um, and that we could do it much quicker. But I think, you know, maybe it's just realistic 
And you've got people like Michael Gove running around citing things like, we could do it in five years if we wanted to. Maybe we could do it in five years if we asked every civil servant to down tools and every other thing that mattered to us. But it's just, we've got to change the whole infrastructure of our country. So imagine you walk past the corner shop in the morning and it's full, it's full of plastic. That little business mm-hmm. has now got to resource everything because they're not, they're not legally going to be able yeah. to repackage. You know, you walk past a council estate and they there is a man um, or a woman packing the rubbish off the floor into plastic bags. So that whole part of the government and the local services has got to find a new bag to pack it in. So mm. it's so widespread. And what it shows me is that they're taking this realistic approach is yeah. that they're thinking about this strategically. And they're not saying, just look at the environmental part of the government. Um, just do, you know, you eco-warriors go out and do your thing and that will be fine and we'll do it in the next five years that's not what they're doing i think the issue is that there are alternatives available currently and i i I think i i love your point about um this impacting small businesses and how this isn't practical for them necessarily but i think it is practical for sainsbury's tesco you know all of these large supermarkets big businesses have the power I mean, my gosh, you know, we go and see the individually wrapped avocados that have their own protective skin in them. You know, (laughs) stuff like that. I find it, you know, crazy that 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 is acceptable. And I think think we need to move much, much faster. And I think 2043, I mean, crikey, you know, we're going to be up to our eyeballs in plastic. And and we need to open our eyes to that. I think think on that, I I mean, I, yeah, I really do question how how strategic. I'm, I'm not disputing that people within deck or whatever the department is called these days are working on some good ideas and and are very committed but having watched the announcement and and looked through the plan i i just can't see there being any realistic basis behind 2042 as a as a day and i and i really i was reading today that unilever committed to 100 percent recyclable plastic they're not they're not going to get rid of plastic but it'll be recyclable by 2025 if a consumer goods company that size that produce so many products can do that by 2025 then as a country we can 2042 just seems so far away Theresa May's probably thinking she probably looked at the the date that she would be retired and well past it and thought I'm going to pick that day I don't think um, I don't think any of us are under the illusion that Theresa May will still be in government anywhere near 2042 yeah exactly she's going to be well gone whatever we think of her Businesses have a huge responsibility and I think it's great that they are aiming to take matters into their own hands as quickly as possible. And I think what that shows is different to other legislation that we pass, which usually has businesses cramming and rushing um, and tearing apart their businesses to meet the legislation. I think it shows the humans that sit behind it and that actually we are way more motivated by this than we are about most things. Um, and there's something massive to be said for this mass grassroots on this issue. And, and I think that's why businesses are making the change. And, and this is, a, we made the point earlier about no bystanders, right? And, and I think this, this is the same. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is all about every, everyone in every walk of society, um, including the CEOs and the, and the leaders within our large corporations saying, do you know what, this isn't okay. And by the way, Teresa, we can do much better than that. We can do much better than 2043 or whenever it is. Um, and I think that's really important. It's really important that we have people um, in society who care, who care about the global impact of plastic waste, who care about the global impact on our animals um, and want to make a change. And I think, I think we, those people must act and we are all, there are more of us than I think we realise. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my takeaway from it. I just wonder whether that's easy to say from our London-centric bubble or, you know, metropolitan liberal elite or whatever you want to uh, throw as an accusation and whether that some of the poorest, most disadvantaged areas of society might find that more difficult. Um, certainly supermarkets and other businesses would argue that costs would go up if they have to invest large amounts of money in changing their supply chains in uh, research and development into plastics um, the shelf life of some products may change due to due to plastics um, and that's where not disputing that the change needs to be made but that we may need 
government support to step in and either force the hand of business. Mm. That's a balance between incentivizing businesses to change versus taxation on the areas that we can, maybe the, the areas that will raise money in, in more affluent areas. As always, I think this is about collaboration. We're moving away from this isolated, siloed mode that business managed to get along with for so many years. We have so many big businesses based in this country and we, we, we should be looking at this as a global issue anyway. Um, but if they all club together, it's, you know, it's, it's no skin off their nose to be able to research into these kind of things. It's not that we're asking Sainsbury's to carry the load for everyone. Get together and make a change. <laughs> we should trust we should trust um, human nature, we should trust um, the willingness to make a difference. And, and the other thing is, wouldn't it be great if we, as an example, we talked about China and um, exporting our plastic to China for landfill, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually do some stats on where is plastic coming from? Is it McDonald's? Is it Tesco? Mm. You know, because we can, we can tell and we get all of those lovely people that give up their time, volunteer to clean up our beaches and they always look at the plastic and where it's come from. Wouldn't it be great if we could do some stats on that? You know, is it the um, you know the plastic rings you get on on beers like Fosters and yeah. Budweisers? You know, is it those guys or you know the, the 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 people that work with animals and they find plastics or that have been swallowed yeah. by animals? It would be great for A them good to old tell us where that plastic name and from. shame. That's Quite. what you're proposing. Quite. Another social conscious uh, angle and the difference between potentially individual behaviour and societal behaviour. One of the responses to the plastics announcement was that plastic bottles are one of the key contributors to this. So municipal water fountains, um, mm -hmm. something that would have been very common 100 years ago, much yeah. far less common now. Um, think, initiatives like that, how can they impact change in this area? I mean, personally, I don't see why we can't move almost entirely away from plastic bottles of water. I think the only bottles of water that I've, or the vast majority of bottles of water that I've bought have been through meal deals, mm -hmm. where it's actually worked out cheaper for me to have a bottle of water that I don't want than mm -hmm. to just buy a, buy a sandwich and a, and a packet of crisps. But I, I, I do believe more generally, you know, the water, if you take the water sector, you've got, you know, just tap water, it's great help the country beyond belief but then people buy you know cheap bottles of or well, no, still expensive bottles of Evian but all the way up to melted Svalbardy iceberg water that you can now buy in Harrods for £100 a bottle. I don't understand how we've got this market that is based on something so basic um, that you know has just developed into these weird and quite horrendous areas mm. but we can't how do we get people to how do we build the brand of tap water? How do we get more people yeah. to, to appreciate it without I, general marketing techniques? I don't, I don't know if it's a lack of appreciation for tap water for most people. It's that there is, I'm desperate for a drink and there's nowhere to go. But I spoke to yeah. um, my parents, my resident people who know life before <laughs> millennials. And I said to them, oh, apparently there was water fountains in the past mm. um, and that uh, bottled water only came into existence in, you know, 1970s, 1980s. And my dad said, yeah, people thought it was a massive con. They mm. couldn't believe that anyone would ever spend money on something you could get for free. Mm. And I think, you know, we still operate on the same mechanics. So if there's a water fountain nearby, no way on earth am I buying a bottle of water because it's the same. Like, we all know you can put any water in a bottle and sell it. You know, we've got to make it convenient. The problem is, they're talking about these new water fountains that are going to be in London. Does anyone know how many water fountains? 20, I think. 20 water fountains in London. I know that the water fountains that I use in Greenwich Park mysteriously stop working during the winter months and I think it's because they get nicked but I run and I rely on the water fountains like halfway through my 10k run to like top up on some fluids. We're lucky Nazia's here having made it through the winter run. <laughs> I did 10k today. Without, well done, Nazia. Without, without, without I, I knew that fountain. story was going somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no water fountain inside. I, I <laughs> she made, made it I, even I without water fountain. I made it. It was tough. But so there's a there's a confluence of two ideas there, right? You ban 
plastics and therefore the water bottles in stores have to be in something that you can recycle and you create municipal water fountains uh, so that people's behavior changes maybe those water fountains can become a force for good in other ways bringing people together maybe it's a a beacon for a kind of changed attitude towards plastics and towards the general consumption of things those amazing stores where people take their own containers and get mm. and get some off shit i love that you know i i don't want to have to go to a supermarket and buy a load of plastic i try and minimize my plastic waste um and my australian housemate frustrates me deeply because she has a lot of plastic waste wouldn't it be great if i could just send her off with you know various tupperware and then she yeah. goes and with a pirate yeah. dish so yeah. well so i know we've talked like and maybe we've um suggested that government intervention isn't always the best thing but something around uh, recycling behavior suggests that when you give people the tools to recycle with people do it the uptake of recycling when people are given uh, green bags blue boxes um, people respond to them so maybe let's stretch this a little bit further we can do the other way around and give people reusable devices whether they're containers whether they're bottles whether they are things to take into supermarkets um, that then allow every member of society again doesn't need to be means tested mm-hmm. doesn't need to be dependent on your class or uh, affluence uh, give people containers people go and use them maybe that's a way for as a broader society us to drive a change so it's interesting your idea is to attach meaning to a product we all have but it's going to be provided to us so that we then you know it makes you feel like you're part of something and you'll see other people doing it, you feel a bit bad if you're not doing it. Like when people bring their reusable bags now in front of you, they're like, oh, I knew I was coming here, why didn't I bring a bag? Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's I a debate, change, Adam, you're meant to not agree with I think changing those behaviours <laughs> well, is, is, think, is easier than Theresa May and Excel. Yeah. I think people really want to make those changes, yeah. and I think we're all willing to do so because we all recognise the impact. And I think those behaviours, I, th- I think even just the, the stats and Blue Planet around plastic use and, and particularly the coffee cups. I have my own keep cup. I got it. <laughs> I got it I got it when I was in Australia because it, I think it's much more it's already much more popular over there. But even in just the past two weeks from using that I've had two people that, that run coffee shops inquire about where I got it and, and whether they, they could stock them. And I've had other people ask as well. So I think some of the stats that are, that are saying that attacks couldn't work are based on two years ago or, or even a year ago. I think even just the discussion that's been kicked up, things, could, mm. you know, the playing field could be quite different now. Yeah. Um, I mean, to, to summarise, well done, Adam, well done, Adam, on your reusable cup. Mm. Well done, Nazia, on your running without the water fountain. <laughs> um, the, the question, I'm left with a few questions. One, Please trust your gut feeling when something is wrong based on both of the debates we've had today. Why does it take a statement in Blue Planet to get the country talking about this? We all knew that this wasn't okay. Why didn't we do something or more before? And my, my final thing is, what can we do so we never become reliant on something as much as we're reliant on plastic today? Because we, we've done this to ourselves and now we have to dig ourselves out and it's going to take the next 25 years to do it. We see similar stuff happening with oil, the sheer number of global issues that happen as a result of that reliance. What can we do to, to stop that kind of thing happening? So it's that time of the show again, uh, the time for listener questions. And I've got some exciting news for everyone out there. We do now have listeners. Yeah, that's great. Not enough whooping from you. We, we have like, um, uh, I think all of our parents have listened to it. No, not not quite true. I spoke to my mother the other day and I said, I'm recording the next podcast tomorrow. And she said, oh, right. Wanting to move on to another conversation. And, and I said, none of you would know because I don't think any of you listened, did you? And they said, no, me and your dad opened it but saw it was quite long so didn't bother. <laughs> <laughs> so if that isn't a case for making a shorter podcast, I don't know what it is. Great, great user feedback. Well, I know at least five people have listened to it because I forced them to listen to it. I'm like, one of those. Sat over their shoulder whilst they <laughs> listened. Um, so, yeah, we're going up in the world. Um, so, Laura, can you read out our first listener question? I would gladly read out a listener question. Oh. Um, but... 
Um, sadly, no questions were submitted, listeners. Come on, listeners. Come on, listeners. We can't do it all ourselves. For God's sake, listeners. <laughs> um, yeah. Luckily, we do have two lovely guests in the room who I believe might have brought some questions. Yes. Adam, should we start with you? Yeah, sure. So, I have a question about sandwiches. Um, One of my favourite subjects. Which, which is based on research that came out recently um, from Manchester University into the carbon intensity of different sandwiches. They measured, I think, 40 different brands of ready-packaged sandwiches, um, factoring in the entire supply chain and also the impact of the packaging, and found that the worst offender was a all-day breakfast sandwich, which is equivalent to 1,441 grams of carbon, or <gasps> driving your car for 12 miles. Whoa. Oh. Doesn't surprise me, actually. It's just something I've never thought about. Wow, that's but when crazy. you think about all the different ingredients that go into an all-day breakfast sandwich, like I would expect a very, you know, what's the simplest sandwich? Help me out. Egg the mayo. The shit on cheese. Sandwiches. A cheese. A cheese sandwich. You would expect that to be a much lighter so, carbon footprint. So yeah. So in the study, they found that a homemade ham and cheese sandwich could be as much as fifty percent lower in terms of its carbon intensity. But that's a homemade one. So I've still, got, I've still got a pretty bad carbon footprint on my homemade sandwich. Should we start printing the carbon intensity on the side of packaged sandwiches? So how about you don't make sandwiches and you do something different? Well, this is my question to, to each of you. Would you, do you think carbon-based diets, not eating Ooh. carbon of course, but do you think that could Are be... Are we talking about being vegan? I think that sounds like that's what you're suggesting. I don't know. To a point, but to a point, but not. Yeah, because not not getting to that level necessarily (laughs) for everybody. I don't think. That extreme level of veganism. Partly, is it it extreme? Is it because we all know that eating meat is bad for the planet? Meat is murder, as Morrissey said quite correctly, and you know meat meat produces that whole. We have to grow so much grain to feed our poor cows that we brutally, savagely kill so that we can have a little steak. Well, we can agree to to disagree on (laughs) veganism for the moment, but in that ballpark, maybe, could people build their diets a bit more around factoring in the carbon intensity of the things they eat? I think that's really interesting. Like, City Mapper a few years ago started designing their platform so that you could choose the route that was most carbon efficient. I don't know if they still do that. But I thought that was really interesting. I think that's especially interesting in the topic of food. So there's one end of the argument that says like, you throw it all up in the air and you say, what's the best way uh, for least impact on the planet to reduce the amount of food yeah. that we need for the entire yeah. planet? Self-sufficiency. I mean, that, that's one argument, right? And that's, yeah. that's an argument that maybe potentially uh, veganism yeah. would would be one way to, to go towards that yeah. there's also like joy and having like a nice time and fun and lots of people who enjoy uh different types of food in their diet including meat um yeah. Uh, yeah, on the other end so maybe there's a happy medium i certainly know yeah i certainly know that i'm a much more uh like conscious consumer of meat than i was in the past like mm. I'll look at my lunch during the day and be like, do I really need to chuck those little bits of processed meat into my soup that I'm buying? Or is the one that's just vegetables going to be okay? Or the same with the sandwich. Like, I only have five minutes for lunch, but maybe I will get the sandwich that is vegetarian rather than the sandwich that's got, like, a piece of processed pork in it. Um, So I certainly reckon that that is a a thing that a lot of people could jump on board with. I think the Queen had a great idea with this. The Queen? Yes. Elizabeth II. <laughs> Elizabeth the right second. Coronation chicken. No, it's a it's it's a great <laughs> it was a great guess. Just put it, people off off the meat forever. I don't know if the Queen was uh, the main advocate of coronation chicken. No, and but my assumption is that the Queen invented afternoon tea, which I believe she did. No. Yeah. No. no. Afternoon tea happened way before the Queen. That it was, was Langham's. Yeah, that was like a big no, not Langham's. Uh, because they only used sure. to have breakfast and then dinner. So one afternoon tea was invited because people were like fainting because they were dying. But I think by, by the by the high Victorian <laughs> period, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure they had breakfast, elevens uh, is lunch, afternoon tea, Ooh. high tea. Supper. I think they they basically went too far. Too many meals. Too many meals. 
ahead. Leap years ahead. Yeah, they were just jumping four years ahead at a time. It was, it was, it was a really, it was a really long period. The Victorian era. Maybe that's how we can drive environmental change quicker. But the point I was going to make about the Queen's afternoon tea is cucumber sandwiches. That's got to be really low carbon emission because anyone can grow a cucumber. So yeah. the, I think that's the solution to this. Cucumber and marmite especially is very good. So li- oh. listeners, uh, give you the challenge of going away and seeing if you can grow a cucumber. Um, apparently Laura thinks it's really easy. Especially so if everyone, if everyone could let us know how easy it is to grow a cucumber, <laughs> that'd be great. I'm not, I'm not sure about cucumbers specifically. I, <laughs> I do know in the study that, that the author pointed out that lettuce, if possible, should be avoided because it has a... <gasps> Of the vegetable yeah. world, it has a high carbon intensity. So I'm not right. sure where where cucumber sits. I'll have to I have to look into that a bit what more. It but it could well be that cucumber is water, I guess. Oh. Is is bad for the environment. And obviously, when you buy a cucumber, mm. there's always the, the two bits on the end that never <laughs> that, that never get used. So I'd imagine you know it could well be. I love a cucumber end. But to sum this up, um, <laughs> we we end up in. In the same situation that many many of us might find ourselves in, and that one can do no good. Nazia, did you bring anything for us today? I did. I have two stories. Oh. So one is around. I know you talked about it earlier in the show. The um, Nutella riots. So the fact that in certain French supermarkets there was a seventy percent price cut of Nutella. And the French public went crazy, and the right police had to get called in because people were killing each other, literally, literally over, killing over each other. Chocolate with an actual death. Yeah, in jars of chocolate. So there was any death. <laughs> Listeners, and fact check. Yeah. No actual deaths caused by yeah. the right. <laughs> no, sorry, I did I? I mean, unless there were some nut allergies that. In which yeah. that's highly possible. Oh. Flying hazelnuts, very, very <laughs> not dangerous. Good, not good. But I, this weekend I was in um, Calais, so I'm a trustee of a charity called Citizens of the World Choir, and we raised in just a couple of weeks um, some um, money to buy food and warm clothes for uh, the refugees that are still piling into Calais. And um, I was heartbroken to um, realise, I know Laura, you've been there yourself also, um, that they've levelled the, the camp, so what was called the, the jungle, and they've even painted over the Banksy. That made me cry. They actually painted over the Banksy, um, which is like a real, like, two fingers up to hope. Um, but so what, what struck me was that the French are so moved about Nutella, and yet there are boys, um, young, young men and young women and children um, dying. Yeah, I mean, how I first got involved in what, what is and what's going on in Calais is I had, you know, as we were growing up, we saw all sorts of terrible things happening on television, but it was mostly in Africa and places that were very far away and it was very hard to imagine what life was like. And suddenly I saw these terrible scenes playing out just, you know, just miles from where my hometown is on the South Coast. And I just felt like I couldn't sit and do nothing anymore. And when I went over there, I actually found that it was very much more organized than I had imagined. Um, people were, though they were living much lesser lives um, in terms of infrastructure and all of those things that, than we used to, I found that people were get, getting on with things and mm. starting businesses and there was a high street and all of these things and though that was made out of wood and, and um, tarpaulins and things like that, it was quite structured. And then the decision was made that they would dismantle that camp not so long ago by way of kind of getting rid of of the problem but yeah. but the problem is we're, st- we're still not dealing with the source of the problem and we're not not able to cope with people who are coming in and it's kind of a I, I kind of see them passing around this ball of responsibility like a hot potato and saying it's your problem UK because they're coming to you and yeah. the UK is saying no it's your problem France because they're in your they're on your territory they're behind the lines we drew um for you to be behind um, yeah, I, you know, I can't, I can only think, bringing it back to my original point, that I'd watch these things on TV, that the majority of people are still watching it on TV and not being able to have empathy. Is something being so close to our borders maybe something that we also push away and don't want to consider? So we see things like comic relief give us 
particular periods of time, a day, a week, a month, where we say, oh, we will have a charitable focus. Mm -hmm. And then we focus that charitable focus upon something far away, like Mm -hmm. drought or poverty or war Mm -hmm. in in Africa or in the Middle East. And when something's on our doorstep and it's happening Mm -hmm. constantly, like it's the same with, you say like refugee camps in Calais, but you say the same for like homelessness in the UK. and when something is that close on our doorstep, we find it really difficult to, to respond because it doesn't require one day of thinking about it or one week of thinking about it. It requires constant thinking about it and constant social awareness of it. And, and that's something that's hard for people. I don't, I, I, I just, I'm quite a cynical person in, in a lot of ways, but I just can't believe that that, that that is the case, that people do care, whether it's the French or the English or whoever. That they do care more about Nutella than than people just through you know just through where they were born mm. and what's gone in their countries, mm. not having a chance at a, a safe and enjoyable life without risking risking that to get to get here. Mm. But I think the only way I can make sense of it is that we look the other way in order to protect ourselves from that reality to realize that yeah just through some random piece of luck we've been born here and they they've been born born elsewhere yeah i i think that's a really nice point adam we're we're looking away to protect ourselves i i'd like to close by bringing it back to the the theme of today's podcast inadvertently something we didn't plan is this notion of being a bystander Mm. and it's perfectly possible that within our lifetimes the table will turn and we will be seeking refuge and and terrible things will be happening to us and then we won't understand why no one wants to listen Um, and we won't understand why people like us who just happen to be in different within different borders won't want to talk to us so thanks so much for bringing this to the table Nazia and thank you everybody for your views on this A, a vast array of topics today that have been pretty challenging to to debate and i hope that listeners you've heard some things that that might um might shed a bit of light in a different direction to what you usually think about that's the end of episode two so thank you so much guest it's been incredible to have you with us thank you so much for giving us your time i know jamie and i appreciate it and our listeners do too thanks very much thank you thank you and so for today I'm Laura, he's Jamie, and this was Shoot My Shit.